0: Kevin of Truth Jihad Radio, here to remind you that on October 20th, 2011, exactly 10 years ago today, Libyan leader Muhammad Gaddafi was murdered. This destabilization of Libya has t- thrown the country into complete chaos, which is pretty much where it's been ever since. Who was behind that? Well, uh, Hillary Clinton is certainly one of the murderers. She's well known for cackling. We came, we saw, he died. He <laughs> A good cackle for 11 days before Halloween. And that horror story was the subject of much of my interview with Ellen Brown a few years ago. So in honor of the memory of the late Muammar Gaddafi, we're going to replay that interview right here on Truth Jihad Radio. If you like this kind of radio, please support it by subscribing by way of the subscribe at Substack button at truthjihad.com or you can make a one-time gift by clicking on the PayPal button once again at truthjihad.com This is Ed Asner and you're listening to No Lies Radio Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio I'm your host, Kevin Barrett, doing the show every Friday evening here at Revolution Radio on the web at freedomslips.com. And boy, freedom sure has been slipping away, hasn't it? But we're going to go out and give it back. That's right. We're not uh, resting on our laurels here. Truth Jihad has been going on since 2006 when I started doing this show
1: on RBN. That's not Revolution Radio. That's the R4 Republic Broadcasting
0: Network. So we've had 10 years almost of Truth Jihad Radio. And it's going strong. We've got Larry Silverstein on the run. If you've been catching my latest articles over at Veterans Today, you see that Larry Silverstein, the confessed demolisher of World Trade Center Building 7, is uh, con- confessing. He can't He can't keep his mouth shut. He can't stop from spilling the beans. Uh, but we're, we're not going to talk about that in the first hour here. We're going to actually get
1: going on a somewhat related topic, and that is the real reason why the elite does what it does. You know they're they're not just uh, playing games. They have reasons for what they do, and a lot of those reasons, if you really want to get to the bottom of them, you have to follow the money. And that's what my guest this hour, Ellen Brown, does. Ellen Brown is the author of Web of Debt, and she's following the money better than anybody, getting to the truth of how power works in today's corrupt world. So, hey, welcome, Ellen Brown.
2: Uh, thanks, Kevin. Great yeah. talking
1: to you. Yeah, good to have you back. Um, so we have an interesting election season to say the least uh these insurgent mm-hmm. candidates from Trump and Sanders uh the the specter of a uh, bush versus clinton major party race looks like that's uh, been we've been saved from that disaster um, but we haven't necessarily been saved from Hillary Clinton and your latest article on the amazing emails of Hillary Hillary Clinton revealing that they murdered Colonel Qaddafi in Libya and overthrew the government and basically destroyed that country, not to protect human rights, as they told us, but to protect the currency system. And you're the expert on that. So so tell us about that.
2: Well, um, first I have to say I'm speaking on my own behalf and not on the behalf of any organization, which might happen to be a 501c3.
1: (laughs) Me Um, too, me too. Yeah,
2: okay. Um, Well, so – um we were told, as you say, that it was all about um humanitarian concerns that Gaddafi was a madman who was uh whose soldiers' military were um raping and pillaging and killing their own people and so in her emails, it uh confirmed that these were mere rumors from uh the rebels, so obviously not uh, not reliable and uh, Independent uh, humanitarian organizations looked in, had looked into it at the time, and said there was no evidence for it. So nobody's ever found any evidence of, like the most one of the most outrageous things is this idea that he was handing out um, <clears throat> Viagra to his troops. To... Now,
1: which PR agency do you think came up with that? <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, apparently the evidence for it was that there was a package of Vi- Viagra found outside of a bombed tank, but the tank was bombed to smithereens. So it was kind of like that passport that fell out of the uh, World Trade Center plane.
1: <laughs> the only thing that survived was the Viagra <laughs> tablet.
2: Now that would be a great pharmaceutical ad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to see that. I- I'm tired of those stupid ads. You know, I-, I watched I watched some football this year during Green Bay Packers season. And uh, I suffered through those ads, including these pathetic uh, ads for sexual AIDS. I mean, they didn't have that kind of stuff on TV when I was a kid. Anyway, getting back to Gaddafi. Right. I was
0: on
1: TV. I don't watch TV anymore. Well, yeah, I try not to. You know, the thing is, I I have these friends and neighbors who are kind of into the Green Bay Packers and stuff like that. So I kind of hang out a little bit with my neighbors and watch sporting events and occasionally try to slip in a subversive word. (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's i watch a lot funny. of
2: documentaries there's some great documentaries on these days i was thinking i should make a list of all the good ones because they tend to disappear after a while
1: that's a really good idea you know we actually had that idea a while back here in wisconsin rolf Lindgren, who's a, an interesting character <laughs> he was my campaign manager in 2008 when i was running against the banksters uh, he's, uh had this idea of doing a book of all of the best uh, documentaries, just an encyclopedia, basically, of alternative documentaries. And you could have a pretty big encyclopedia of good alternative documentaries, couldn't you? Yeah,
2: yeah. I've seen good ones on North Korea and, I mean, just places that you would never go yourself, and they give a real insight on what's going on. And, of course, it's never what the media tell
1: us. Right, right. Yeah, my old friend Andre Volcek. Uh, apparently touched down again and he's been in North Korea many times and I think he just wrote some, something from there. I'm going to try and get him back on, but he, he says we've got it all wrong and actually the North Koreans are heroic holdouts against the new world order.
2: Yep. That's what these videos seem oh. to indicate too. And it looked credible to me.
1: And, and that's kind of what Gaddafi was too.
2: Yeah. Well, so the other, with the other interesting emails, the email that uh, really piqued my interest and the reason I wrote about it um was one from Sidney Blumenthal. A third of these emails, there were like 3,000 emails that were uh, released on New Year's Eve of uh, December 31 last year and about a third of them were from Sidney Blumenthal who was um, the Clinton confidant for 20 years ever since he uh, um, went after uh, Monica Lewinsky said she was stalking the president, and that was uh, that was the first we ever heard of him, his <laughs> first notoriety. Um, so he wrote in this email that uh, the reasons he gave the reasons why uh, uh, Sarkozy, the French president, was uh, had decided to back the the um, whatever you want to call it, the campaign against Libya, the military campaign, the bombing of Lib- Libya, was that he had his People had discovered that Gaddafi was organizing a, um, an African union that would use their own gold dinar and their own silver durham, something like that. So he had something like 143 tons of gold, and he was issuing his own gold dinar through um, the Central Bank of Libya, which was an independent, a truly independent bank, not part of the Bank for International Settlements. And through this bank, he did amazing things. Um, he was he funded this great irrigation system, the Great Man-Made River Project, which uh, is the world's largest irrigation system. But anyway, that wasn't an email. But what the email said was that he was organizing the African nations to all do this, use only the gold dinar, And apparently they'd met several times, and and this was a real plan, and they were planning to have this in place by 2023. And already in Libya, you couldn't buy his oil or do any kind of – of course, the the oil was nationalized, which is a bad (laughs) – not a a model they want spread to start with. But already you had to go through the Central Bank of Libya to do any kind of trade with, with Libya. So interesting. So that's what that was the interesting, really interesting email that it confirmed something that I wrote about it in 2011, but a number of other people wrote about it too, which was very strange. That a couple of weeks after the rebels, right at the very beginning of this re- alleged rebellion, the rebels set up a their own central bank, like a central, which then became part of the Bank for International Settlements. You know, it's now the supposedly the official central bank of Libya, but they set that up immediately, and who were these rebels? Supposedly guys in the desert who weren't, just weren't satisfied with the government. So but that that was suspicious at the time, and people knew at the time that Gaddafi was planning to organize the African countries. I mean, in 2011, that was known. Well, in fact, that email was uh, dated, I think, April 2011. Mm-hmm. So that was con- so now we've got published confirmation that that the government knew all that and this this email said that that was Sarkozy's motive, that he wanted to retain control over Africa didn't want Lib- uh, Libya to replace France as the dominant power in the area and they were of course concerned about this um, this currency that would replace the French franc and. The, the dollar and all the the Western currencies that were currently being used
1: for trade elsewhere. You mentioned that these so-called Libyan rebels who obviously were being trained by the CIA and and who knows who else for decades. We know that Eastern Libya was a hotbed of CIA activity and and the rest of the Western intelligence agencies, Israeli Mossad, they're all playing around over there trying to stir up uh, trouble for Gaddafi. Um, And then these guys who were told, they just come out of nowhere, they're just protesters, they miraculously create a central bank linked to the BIS, Bank for International Settlements, like a couple of weeks into their rebellion. Uh, And yet, of course, these guys can't even come close to governing Libya today. It's all a feuding type of Mad Max-style warlords running around there now. Uh, It's it's really pretty obvious that this was a sort of a coup d'etat regime change operation. But what really makes me annoyed about this, Ellen, is that the opposition to Gaddafi portrayed itself as holier than thou, Islamically speaking. They pretended to be an Islamic opposition, and they didn't like the way Gaddafi was supposedly heretical. His his brand of Islam was was not pure enough for them. They're all, you know, Salafi, Saudi-funded types, you know, taking money from the Saudis who were in bed with the big banksters, and so they claim that they're doing this for religious reasons to overthrow Gaddafi, but Wait a minute. I mean, it's the, the most, the, the worst possible sin in Islam, pretty much, besides shirk, which is association with God and, you know, idolatry, is uh, is interest, is, is riba. Any kind of interest is like there are these uh, there are sacred sayings from Quran and Hadith making it clear that the, it, you know, taking a penny of interest on a loan is the equivalent of doing things that I can't even talk about on the radio, it's horrible. It's completely taboo, completely haram or forbidden. And so what Gaddafi was doing by getting out of the interest-based or Reba-based, usury-based Western Rothschild petrodollar coming out of BIS and all of the world's big uh, controlled central banks run by the banksters was a it, absolutely Islamically correct thing. In fact, he's probably just about the only real Muslim in the position of power on the planet when he's doing that. And then the supposedly Islamic rebels, who are actually working for the Shaitan, they're on the army of, of Satan, uh, but pretending to be more Muslim than Gaddafi, overthrow him to install a Rothschild central bank. <laughs> exactly. stuff up. I mean, as a Muslim, I am ready to wage jihad when I hear this kind of stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the beauty of having your own central bank. You could fund things interest free, which is what they did with the, that great man made river um i I think you know it be. that was a forty year project it was these you see pictures of it in these gigantic um tubes, whatever you call them cylinders um, made out of some sort of durable plastic or something that were they're huge like uh, uh, several people could stand in them. And, uh, there were several of these wide, so the, the water was just gushing out of the desert from underneath the desert. They found enough water underneath the desert, supposedly, to keep all of Libya in water for 50 years. Well, what's that water doing under the desert? That, I think it was primary water. There's, that's another one of these scarcity myths that There's not enough water. The only water that exists is the water that's been in the air, and then it falls down on the ground. That's not true. The Japanese researchers have discovered that there is five times as much water under the Earth's mantle, like five miles down, than above it. There are all these oceans of water underneath. Really? And... That, of course, you can't drill for five miles, but whenever you have volcanoes or earthquakes, this stuff pushes up from the bottom up into these fissures. So all you have to do is find the fissures, and there are now new ways of doing that. Um, so Gaddafi himself said in 1992, when they managed to get the water into the cities, they, it was an ongoing project because they're still bringing water to the desert to turn it into agricultural land. But when they got it into the cities, he said, he kind of laughed, and he said he was probably going to be killed for this. And he said that they would be redoubling their efforts to get him after they'd done it. he'd done this. And he was planning to bring this whole plan to all of Africa, show them how they could fund their own development. They didn't need the West. They could have their own money. Clearly, they're very resource rich. All they have to do is kick out the Westerners who own everything, and take back their oil, take back their um, gold and, and their resources. And the one thing they might have thought they were short of is water, but the water is there, and he would have shown them. I mean, if we're t- what we're talking about is ordinary aquifer water, the water wouldn't have been there, so how did he figure he was going to take water to all of Africa? But he's going to show them how to do what he had done, become self-sufficient,
1: so... Wow, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, just as an aside, you're not playing with a rubber duck, are you? Uh, because there's, <laughs> there's this weird squeaking. Uh, oh,
2: and, I'm sorry. It's my chair. Your <laughs> chair. You need to yeah.
1: wheel your chair, Ellen.
2: <laughs> yeah, I need to. I should use this fake bacteria,
1: right? I see. Okay, well, as long as you're not in the bathtub, uh, you know, playing with a rubber duck. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'll try
2: to stuff.
1: All right. So, so yeah, you know, the, the official story of the water underneath North Africa, which I I learned, you know, because I'm a North Africa specialist, supposedly. I I did a Fulbright in Morocco and got my Ph.D. mainly studying uh, aspects of Moroccan Islam. Uh, And the official story is that the climate has changed and what's now desert, uh, the Sahara of North Africa, It used to be uh, lush and green and uh, full of rain and and full of forests and jungles and swamps and lakes, lots and lots and lots of lakes. And it's explained that this isn't this wasn't that long ago, like 5000 years ago, just as the old kingdom was rising in Egypt. uh, That was towards the, the end of this period when there was tons and tons of water across what's now the Sahara. And there are, of course, famous cave paintings of the swimmers of the cave in the middle of the Sahara desert where there's virtually no rain and there hasn't been for a couple thousand years at least – there are these cave paintings showing people swimming around and showing with, you know, with hippopotamuses, and I forget what all the water animals were. Uh, So according to the official story, that aquifer water is aquifer water because there used to be lots and lots and lots of water there. The surface is all dried up, but, of course, it did go down under the ground and get trapped in the bedrock and stuff, and so there's lots of water there because it didn't used to be a desert. So that's the official story, but your version sounds really interesting, and I will have to look into that.
2: Okay,
1: go to primarywaterinstitute.org. They've got all kinds of research. Primary Water Institute, cool. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I think Gaddafi was right that they're, you know, when he said they're going to come after me for this kind of stuff, because that's what they do. You know, there's this brand new version of the John Perkins book. It's called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. His original Confessions of an Economic Hitman was a bestseller when that came out, uh, not that long after 9 11. And he came on my radio show and explained that the reason he wrote that book was he visited Ground Zero shortly after it happened. And he took a look at it and he knew, based on the people he'd been working for, working with, that this wasn't done by guys in caves with box cutters or anything like that. Um, And he's kind of, in the the book, he's a little bit... uh, Oh, he kind of tiptoes around it a little bit. I mean, you have to read a little bit between the lines, but he does tell you it. Uh, he tells you this, that, that basically 9-11 truth is the motivation for confessor of an Economic Hitman, which was a New York Times bestseller, and, and now it's out again with a, a lot of new material. Um, but anyway, he, he talked about how his job was to go and basically run a kind of a racket, uh, shaking down heads of state, offering them a fistful of $100 bills, in return for taking usurious, unpayable loans from the World Bank. And the purpose of this was to get these countries deep into debt they could never pay back, so then the banksters could lean on them, as it were, L-I-E-N, or however you want to spell, lean on them, and grab up all their resources. Uh, so this is kind of how it works. And then if, if the leader of the country wouldn't go along with Perkins or the other economic hitmen, in would come the jackals or, or the asteroids, whatever you want to call them, the professional killers who specialize in taking down leaders of countries or U.S. senators like Wellstone or whoever in plane crashes. And if or they'll they'll also sometimes apparently give people cancer, as happened to Hugo Chavez. And so so mm-hmm. these people, they and if that doesn't work, if they can't get to them with the asteroids, then they send in the military one way or another. Which they had to do to, to Saddam Hussein, and it's what they had to do to Noriega in Panama, and uh, that's pretty much what they had to do to Gaffi <laughs> as well. So that's really how the world is run. It's obvious that Perkins was right, even though the, the establishment doesn't want us to admit that. Uh, and, and it's really disgusting. I mean, this is these are the people that rule the world. These, uh, you know, these racketeers, these these criminals. Ah, uh,
2: uh, you assume they're people.
1: You, <laughs> wait a minute. You, you, you're already going down the rabbit hole or the, the, the what do you call it, the water hole, uh, the, the water crevasse of water conspiracy theory. Don't tell me that you buy into David Icke's contention that we're being ruled by uh, alien uh, extraterrestrial lizards.
2: Well, I do listen to it. stuff. It. it's pretty interesting. I also listened to Catherine Austin Fitz, who became convinced after, you know, she was Assistant Secretary of HUD under George Bush Senior, and uh, she she lost her. She was investigating all this money that disappeared, the black budget money. They're very innocently, you know, just trying to keep the budget, and she developed a program to figure out where it went, and all of a sudden she lost her job and and everybody was after her, and she was afraid for her life. Um, so she wound up, you know, really looking into it. But she said when she worked with those people, whoever they are, the military people, she said they weren't human. I mean, there was they were cold. Like, they didn't have empathy. There was something different about them. Mm-hmm. So she she And then the, the more she got into it, I mean, after she had all these terrible traumas, she decided they were ETs so and they weren't from here. But then, of course, there's a whole school of that we're all ETs. um,
0: Well, how can we
1: all have feelings?
2: Well, I mean, we are all genetically manipulated going back thousands of years. And that's why, that's why we don't really belong here. I mean, the animals can sleep on the ground and eat stuff right off the trees and they don't have to wear sunglasses or sunscreen or, you know, we're not really adapted to this place all that well. Yeah. So the ar- argument is that we got we were genetically manipulated. And there were so that goes back to the Sumerian cuneiform writings, which say that there were two gods. There was one that was trying to exploit us, just wanted a worker race to, to do the work. They'd mine the gold and do the agricultural stuff, tend the garden. And then the other was the one that actually genetically manipulated us along with his consort, Inanna. And they, he he saw us as our children, as his children, and with the loving God. So you've got two forces in the universe, That the uh, the one force that's exploitative and, it, well, it'd be like the Matrix. I mean, it just, it all makes good, a good, it's interesting, an interesting possibility, like the Matrix, that there's a fourth dimensional level where there are entities pulling the strings. I mean, it just seems to me that so many amazing things are going on. It is hard to imagine how human beings could pull off some of these things. Like my ex-husband worked for USAID, and I, when I posed these theories about 9-11, he said, no, he said the government couldn't pull that off. He said, I worked for the government. <laughs> They're just not that organized. So it's somebody more organized than than your ordinary politicians or even your ordinary military.
1: Yeah, that's, that's certainly a possibility. You know, and I'm not discounting the likelihood that there there must be all sorts of advanced intelligences swarming around in the universe and presumably coming through here because, you know, we might very well have a lot of cool resources or would be interesting conceivably to some of these, you know, to some percentage, even a small percentage of the zillions of likely intelligences throughout the universe. I mean, that'll make sense. And And, and also I'm convinced that, There uh, is, of course, an alam al-akhir, as we call it in Islam, another world, a world that we're not seeing with our senses most of the time, and that all sorts of information travels in these ways that modern materialistic science does not understand. But the ancients and most other cultures have understood. I mean, everybody has Psi experiences, and in virtually every culture, that's just taken for granted but somehow we've been brainwashed to think that this is all superstition in this culture so yeah the world is much much bigger of course than our you know our cultural programming would would tell us on the other hand uh e- just because it wasn't the government as the government that did 911 doesn't mean that there couldn't be human beings uh, maybe not worthy of the name, but still basically human beings genetically. Well, they could have been
2: here for thousands of years, just like we have, but they may not be, it may be a different, I don't know.
1: Maybe, well, you (laughs) know, Catherine Austin Fitz talks about the lack of empathy of these high-level military guys and stuff. Uh, That, I think, can be partly induced. Well, for one thing, we, we do have this, Study of psychopathy that shows that two percent of the male population in the U.S. and you know slightly sl- lower populations, most other places, are uh, lower percentages. Uh, that is is totally non-empathetic, and you know has these these traits of sort of ruthlessly selfish, almost mechanical selfishness, uh, able to just lie like they breathe, able to kill humans the way most of us could sweat mosquitoes. That such mm-hmm. people do exist, two percent. So, like, you know, if if you know a hundred people, how, how do you, you know
2: that's not a line of ETs?
1: <laughs> well, that's conceivable. They're pretty weird, damn ETs, if that's the case. I don't know though. Uh, I, I also Just think speculating. That, <laughs> I'm not. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's, it's
1: interesting. There could be a, some crossover there, certainly. But also, you, I think you can get sort of manufactured uh, psychopathy in relatively normal humans. I mean, that's what basic training does in the military. That's what they engineered it to do. Or you
2: can give them drugs to do that for sure.
1: Drugs, yeah, or initiation rituals for various kinds of gangs, uh, like the the drug gang in, was it Georgia or someplace like that? I think it was a military-linked drug gang where to be inducted into the gang, you had to go kill somebody, and then they would have evidence that you did that, and then they would, you know, hold that over your head, and now you're one of them. And probably the people that do this kind of become... Psychopathic, just uh, based on what they've done. Likewise, with the people at Skull and Bones, like like Bush and John Kerry, they both lay naked in coffins in front of all of these other people in the in the crypt at Yale University uh, and masturbated uh, while recounting their entire sexual history to this assembled crowd around them, which supposedly includes some of their fathers. I mean, this is bizarre. The people that do this, and then they're trained to believe that they're the elite. Uh, they should only care about their bonesmen brothers. And everybody else is just sheeple to be manipulated or used. And you know, they prob- I think they manufacture psychopaths through these kinds of rituals. So I think normal humans can become psychopathic, whether or not we have any alien DNA. And I would think that maybe if we have some alien DNA, it wouldn't all be making us psychopaths. Maybe some of it would actually be making us better, more spe- Maybe, you know, maybe the great people like Jesus, Prophet Muhammad, peace upon him, people like that actually are, more alien than the average person. They're certainly, you know, better than your average human.
2: Yeah. Well, and I would agree. I mean, there's this whole other universe that we haven't explored that the fact just the fact of consciousness isn't really admitted by science. I mean, you can't find it. What is it? It's not really studied. What happens? Where do you go when you die? It's not really studied. It's all considered myth, but you must go somewhere. Either you do or you don't. At least half the po- half the global population thinks that you survive death.
1: So Well, and they're probably right. Uh the empirical evidence, which is mostly kind of anecdotal, but it's good anecdotal evidence, suggests that yes, there is this evidence for the survival of consciousness after death, at least in the sense that there are many, many, many cases of little children who have these memories of people who lived and died before them that have been quite fully confirmed. Uh, and I, Interestingly enough, the place I first saw this evidence was in a, an article by none other than David Ray Griffin, the greatest scholar in the 9-11 truth movement. He One of the reasons that when I heard that he was saying that 9-11 was an inside job, that really woke me up and made me look into it. Uh, was I'd studied David's work uh, before. I used some of his work in my dissertation. And one of the things he had done was a study of the evidence for the survival of consciousness after death. And he had concluded that it was very, very strong. And that was the first place I ran into. This, this was back long before 9-11 or any of that. that was, this is the you know kind of place where I first was encountering uh, Griffin. Yeah, so, yeah, I, there, is, there is that evidence.
2: I used to study that stuff, too, when I... Before I went to law school, when I figured out I couldn't support myself as a writer, I um, studied all these things I wanted to write about in my 20s, and that was one of them. But I, I bet I know the book. It's 20 Cases Suggestive of Reincarnation by Ian Stevenson of Duke University, right?
1: I think that was one he was referring to, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, there's all kinds of other evidence for Psy. Uh, and, and my favorite work along those lines, at least you know, the popular work, is, is by Dean Radden, who I had on the show, Oh, when was that? Like two or three years ago. Uh, and, and he's with the Noetic Sciences Institute. He used to teach at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And one of the things that he was involved in there was that all the casinos in Las Vegas hire psi people. They hire telepaths and uh, and clairvoyants to stop the psi cheaters. <laughs> they have to pay money to make sure that psi cheaters don't come into their establishments and rob them blind. Uh, so... You know, and, and there are lots of other actual applied psi uh, things going on all over the place, including in the military, where The Men Who Stare at Goats by John Ronson was apparently written and turned into a movie, partly to sort of make light of this area and to, to hold up the parts of the military psi research that are that didn't really work or that are, can be ridiculed in order to d- direct attention away from the ones that are working all too well. Mm-hmm. But a lot of those people are obviously pretty psychopathic if they're not alien reptiles. <laughs> so, you know they're doing terrible things, and you know, they're torturing people at Guantanamo as part of mind control experiments. Uh, as Ronson finds him, John Ronson, he's yeah, he's this Jewish middle class, very establishment kind of guy from London, you know. And he's his job is to kind of explore these crazy conspiracy theories and and kind of make light of them and and have some fun with them, write humorous books. But even John Ronson has to admit that, yeah, they were doing this, these horrific mind control experiments at Guantanamo. They were blasting people with like heavy metal music. or There's some other really bizarre choices of music they were hitting these guys with and just blasting them for 24-7 for God knows how long. And who knows what they were putting under the music. Uh, But there were all kinds of these torture based, trauma based mind control things going on uh, post 9-11, just like back in the 50s when they murdered, I think more than 100 people were actually tortured to death in the CIA mind control experiments in Project Artichoke. So the people that do that kind of stuff, and, you know, some of them, like it was his name Olson, who was murdered for being unreliable and possibly spilling the beans about this, torturing you know, huge numbers of people to death in CIA mind control experiments. People that do this stuff, I don't know if they're alien reptiles, but uh, they, they definitely have some kind of empathy deficit. Mm,
2: empathy deficit. Well speaking of religion, can I ask you? Sure. <laughs> That's expert. Um, you keep it you hear different people like well, now that we have this whole Trump issue about racism and stuff and you see people quoting the um the Quran saying basically kill all the infidels and that sort of thing, you know, outrageous things. And I'm sure that's not what it really says, but I wondered what your take is on all that.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really kind of amazing if you've been through any religious studies and done any work on Islam, that this anti-Islam propaganda campaign is all, I shouldn't say all, but it's, it's primarily driven by people who identify as Jews. Let's, let's be honest about this. And Essentially, these people who identify as Jews are trying to convince people from Christian backgrounds that Islam is evil and crazy and we need to have this huge war on Islam. Oh, and just incidentally, that'll help uh, protect the future of the occupied state in Palestine. (laughs) Uh, So so let's compare the Quran and the Jewish Torah, okay? Uh, Now, anybody who sits down and actually reads those two books... And of course, to really read them, and especially the Quran, you need a little bit of Arabic, or you need to look at a few different translations and and listen to how people are, you know, explaining them. But there's no comparison. The you know the Quran is is totally milquetoast. It's Mother Teresa compared to the Torah or the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of insane genocidal passages. And, you know, mm-hmm. kill them all, kill the men, kill the women, kill the children, you know, burn all their crops, kill all their animals, burn the whole thing to the ground, Yada yada yadda, on and on and on and on and on. There's tons of insane genocidal stuff in the Old Testament, plus all kinds of other insane stuff. Like, you know, Abraham supposedly is going to turn his wife into a whore to try to manipulate the Pharaoh. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even want to get into it. It's just it's it's. Anybody who takes the Torah as a holy book is completely out of their mind. It's great literature. It's really good literature. It's wonderful to discuss it and try and derive some interesting morality and philosophy out of that. But it is an utterly insane book. Anybody who took that as scripture, the word of God telling you how to behave, has got to be a lunatic. And yet the people who come out of that tradition are trying to tell us that the Quran, which is totally sensible, if you read it, properly, in context, it is utterly 100% sensible. It's, mm-hmm. And they're trying to make the Quran out to be the crazy book. These people, uh, it's their chutzpah is beyond description.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought about that with these false flags that they're accusing Qaddafi um, of doing. I mean, who would have even thought of that, putting the fake dead bodies around to make it look like the Americans were bombing? That was supposedly the Our defense to their evidence that we are bombing. But that's the type of thing that we would, that our, you know, (laughs) whoever, whoever it is.
1: Yeah, shameless liars, shameless liars. And of course, it's not just people from Jewish backgrounds who are the shameless liars. Uh, Let's face it, it's become kind of American policy too, especially. In these, in in the Middle East, and these other, you know, third world type regions where we've slaughtered about 55 million people since World War II in in U.S. CIA and military interventions. Um, but, but getting back to the religion thing, uh, the the stuff about slay the infidels in the in the Quran, there are these are well, number one, that's a very very small part of the Quran that is being yanked out of context. And number two, you go back and you look at these particular passages that are supposedly being quoted, and they are all clearly revealed passages about particular situations. And the basic situation here is that they're at war. The Muslim community is, has, you know, is trying to fight for its life the prophet muhammad was almost killed they tried to kill him they had brutally persecuted his followers and to save his life he snuck out of town and barely escaped with his life so they set up this alternative community out in medina and Me- mecca was clearly going to crush medina and mecca is run by these so-called pagans or polytheists the Mushrikun, et etc etc the the kufar these these words for infidel or whatever these, that describes these people that the first muslim community in medina was at war with and so the the word in arabic qatala uh, uh, is the root means it can mean either to kill or to do battle with so basically what this these passages are about is you know we're at war and we we you know we have to do battle with this enemy and that's all it is. It has nothing to do with running around So supposedly killing unbelievers. Uh, that's totally the product of uh, ripping it out of context in order to distort it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one reason that, um, well, for example, that Donald Trump thinks that that Muslims hate Americans or some Muslims or many Muslims is that if you actually believed that the World Trade uh Center was brought down by Muslims in airplanes. Then you would think these guys are really dangerous, and they really hate us. They're they're out to get us for some reason. It seems to me that um, that's probably the whole goal: to split people up, to make people suspicious of their neighbors, so you don't you're you you do not want you don't get together with your neighbors and um, overthrow the existing government, or I shouldn't say overthrow, but you know what I mean, change the existing government, that we're all afraid. We're supposed to be afraid, very afraid, afraid of who might be living next door to you that might be some religion that is theological, or whatever, doctrinally out to get you. And the evidence is these horrible things that supposedly Muslims did that we question whether Muslims really did them.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, I think that divide and conquer thing, uh, that politics of fear thing, I mean, this is very much part of it. And, and when you ask yourself, well, why do they specifically target Islam? The politically correct answer in the truth movement is, oh, they just needed a new enemy after the Cold War. So this in, this is insisting that it was basically a U.S. imperial thing, that we needed a new enemy to justify military budgets. And yeah, I think that's partly true. But I think there's another element, too, which is that you know, why why would they want to necessarily go after Muslims? Why not make somebody else the enemy? Why not do Buddhists? You know, why why not do uh Chinese or Russians or Afro black people, Africans, whatever? I mean, you know, imagine that Trump was saying that no we can't let any more black people come into the country. You know, that would hardly be even tolerated by anybody, but he could say it about Muslims, but it could just as easily have been black people, it could just as easily have been any group on earth could have been set up and scapegoated in a false flag like 9-11 to make people hate them. But why did they choose Muslims specifically? I, I think there are a number of reasons. The biggest reason is that they're, they're, the U.S. and the West have absolutely no problem, nothing to fear whatsoever from Islam or Muslims, geostrategically or in any other way. Yeah, maybe you have to fear a little bit of you know, demographic increase among Muslims, but why fear it? Who cares? Uh, you know, who cares if the Episcopalians are going to be a little more numerous? Who cares if the Muslims are going to be a little more numerous? It doesn't matter. But what? Who, who has something to fear? It's the Israelis. Israel is squatting on stolen land, and they're committing genocide every day against the Palestinians. And the Muslim world doesn't like it, because Palestine has been Muslim-administered holy land ever since Islam existed, basically. So is, Israel has a huge problem with Islam and with Muslims. And they had to sell that to the whole West and say, you guys all have the same problem, too. And that's what those Israeli spies arrested for uh, setting up in advance and then filming and celebrating the destruction of the tower told the police who arrested them. They said, the Palestinians are not just our problem, they're your problem, they're everybody's problem. And, of course, that was the the message, of, that was the number one message of 9-11. It's really about dragging the entire West into an eternal or at least 100-year war on behalf of Israel against the Islamic world. That's the biggest reason. And part of the reason they had to do that, Ellen, was that Muslim Uh, demographic increase in the western countries is posing a or was then posing a political threat to the zionists and the central banksters because in islam there's a very very strong movement against lending at interest against usury so islam and muslims are natural enemies of the central banksters and this currency system and then number two muslims uh... were starting to learn how to exercise their democratic rights and if that had continued the way it was happening in two thousand Today, there would be no Israel. It would have already been gone because it was actually Muslims who elected George W. Bush in 2000. Samuel Aryan organized the Muslim community in the United States, delivered the Muslim vote to the Bush-Cheney ticket, stupidly as it turned out. But Bush-Cheney promised to stop kidnapping and torturing and disappearing Muslims, and, uh, and the Democrats didn't. So... Boom! They, they normally ninety percent of Muslims in the U.S. were voting Democratic. Samuel and organized the Muslim community in the U.S. and especially in Florida delivered the election, and especially Florida to Bush Cheney, and that that was just the beginning. And if there hadn't been nine eleven, that process would have reached the point that Muslim empowerment in the U.S. and in Europe today would have led to the voting down of any kind of support for Israel, and Israel would have folded by now. Uh, so that this is why they did nine eleven. This, the way things were going in 2000 with the demographic issue in Palestine, the Intifadas, uh, the and the growth of Muslim power in the democratic electoral system in the West was going to be putting Israel out of business within a decade. That's the main reason they did 9-11. Hmm. I
2: recently saw a video. I, I, it was Larry Silverstein in the summer of 2011. Or was it 20? I mean, sorry. Was it 2001 or the summer of 2000? I forget. But anyway, before 9-11. And he had contracted to to lease the World Trade Center. And he he said about Building 7 that it was going to have to be rebuilt or redone. And they were going to chop three floors off the top. They were going to make it three floors shorter. And they are, had already done the design. So there's only how are you going to chop some floors off? You're going to have to demolish the thing. So it was the suspicious building that went down for no reason. He just he admitted on tape that they had decided to pull it, which meant to do a demolition on it right then. At you know during nine eleven, so th- it was definitely a plan.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I just wrote that story up for Veterans Today uh, yesterday, oh, and, really? and, and yeah, posted the video where he. This, now this video was actually from a talk he gave like a year or two ago. And in that talk, he admitted that they had uh, planned, oh, okay. a desi- they designed the new Building 7. Uh, okay, I'm qu- probably quoting you, sorry. You probably are. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he said he... Said he, uh, he I was
2: a, impressed, he, it was compelling.
1: They, yeah, they designed the new Building 7 in uh, April of 2000. So that was uh, about a year and a half before 9/11. They had already designed the new Building 7, and yet, as Richard Gage pointed out in his appearance on False Flag Weekly News today, that that couldn't. There's the timeline doesn't make any sense it, unless indeed that was true. Uh, and to do that, though, that meant that like how how could they do a new Building 7 with no way of taking down the old one because there was no way uh, that, you can't just t- do a controlled demolition in the middle of New York City. It's there's no way you're ever going to get a permit for that. Uh, and so you you take it down piece by piece, and it's going to cost you uh, hundreds of times what it's worth. Uh, so it, it just makes no sense that out of the blue in the in April of two thousand, Silverstein and his people are going to design a new Building 7 without any conceivable way of getting rid of the old Building 7. I mean, at that time, Ellen, the tallest building that had ever been demolished in a controlled demolition was about 30 stories. Building 7 was 47 stories. And, of course, the Twin Towers, which they were also desperate to demolish because they were condemned for asbestos. They had antiquated communications equipment. And John Perkins talks about this in Confessions of the Economic Hitman. Uh, these, there was no way they were going to get these demolitions, and yet they had to because the city was ordered to uh, to get rid of all the asbestos from the Twin Towers. And that would have cost billions, probably double-digit billions, again, way more than these useless old white elephant buildings were worth. Uh, so Larry Silverstein then goes and buys the whole World Trade Center complex. He already owns seven, but he goes and buys the rest of the World Trade Center complex uh, and finishes buying it on a 100-year lease. In July of 2001, two months before 9-11, he hardballs his insurers to double the terror insurance and change the terms to cash payout. And then he hits the jackpot on 9-11, the only day in all of history, pretty much, that he wasn't on top of windows of the world because he, he supposedly remembered an appointment with his dermatologist. So everybody there died. But he survived. Goes to court, demands double indemnity on his already doubled insurance policy. He said, "On what basis?" He says there were two completely separate and unrelated terror attacks—the two airplanes—and <laughs> so, on and on. And so he goes later. He 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 grabs over five billion dollars of insurance money on his measly fifteen million investment. Another hundred million of his backers. Now he's floating in money, and he's been doing more and more scams ever since. As he rebuilds these towers, uh, he was back in court looking for another ten billion, and that got shot down. Uh, Larry Silverstein is the living embodiment of Chutzpah. He also ter- hap- happens to be a close friend of Benjamin Netanyahu. He's on the phone every weekend with Netanyahu, according to Haaretz newspaper in Israel. So it's like it's so obvious what's going on here, Ellen. Uh, it's mind boggling that this information has been withheld from the American people.
2: Mm-hmm. And yet they know they can get away with it because if it's not in the in the major media, then it's uh, not true. They get to determine what truth is, and the rest of us are just talking around the Internet.
1: But I I think it's getting more and more uh, into a sort of an Internet journalism era, and that's why Trump has been so successful, I think. You know, the mainstream media has tried to shoot down the Trump campaign, and Trump has managed to keep a lot of support by saying all these things that make the mainstream media bash him. But nobody trusts the mainstream media anymore. So the more it bashes him, the more popular he gets. I mean, is this the mm-hmm. dynamic or am I missing something?
2: Yeah, no, and and I think that people are ready to see things stirred up. They want somebody who's going to go in there, barrel in and be tough. I and mean, he doesn't seem to be afraid of anything. And I, w- what I think is promising is that he might actually do monetary reform. Certainly the old school politicians won't, namely the Clinton faction, um, but he might. If, well, he if called he for re- auditing
1: the Fed. Sorry? He, he supports auditing the Fed. He supported Rand Paul's bill to audit the Fed. Uh, uh-huh. other well, he thinks,
2: he thinks we can do it all, we can have it all. I mean, he's got these grand visions, and there's really only one way we can have it all, and that's to print our own money and get rid of that debt. We can just print our way out of debt, and it will not be inflationary, my contention is, and I'm writing about that now.
1: Wow. I'm looking forward to that article. Well, your your new book is, is The Public Banking Solution. That's the most recent one, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Public Banking Solution. It's
2: actually a book, and it's called Infrastructure Without Debt.
1: Right. Right. And, and yeah, this is a really important book because so often people ask, well, what, what are the solutions? Okay, we see all of these problems. And, and, you know, the problems do all tie in to this usurious currency system, which is all about debt slavery. And So you could really, if not solve, at least really improve the situation on a whole huge cross section of these issues just by doing monetary reform, just getting this power out of the hands of the central banksters and having a a public and transparent currency system. And so that, yeah, I think you're really, uh, you know, zoning in here, zooming in on, on the solution that's most likely to work. Uh, Can you imagine, though, that these masters of the universe, the people who used to employ John Perkins and the asteroids, you know, that are used to being able to just blow up the Twin Towers with 3,000 people inside and blame it on their enemies and get away with murder in a million ways. Are these people really going to let someone like Trump not only win, but then enact that kind of program? Well, that's a
2: good question. He's brave. He's brave. Yeah, you know, maybe brave cuz he doesn't well, I, he must know what he's getting into. But I mean, if he actually thinks that thinks 9/11 was done by Muslims, maybe he doesn't realize what a danger being president, you know, how hazardous that could be to your health.
1: Yeah, boy, I, I I don't know. I mean, I have to wonder what, you know, the, the theories range from some people think that Trump is really just kind of a, uh, you know, a puppet playing a role that's been assigned to him. And some folks think that that would be to get Hillary elected. Like, you know, according to this theory, he's going to self-destruct and pretty much there's no choice but Hillary. Uh, I don't know, though. I, I, I would like to think that, uh, you know, he's really channeling this populist energy and there's more and more
2: i i think that's true he seems sincere to me misguided in many ways but sincere
1: yeah some ways he's sort of out neocon the neocons he's hoisted them on their own petard you know they're the ones who set this islamophobia up with 9 11 you know, they intentionally created this wave of Islamophobia to serve their interests and primarily Israel's interests, in my opinion. Uh, but also, of course, their personal career interests, everybody who invested in this terror industrial complex and all of that. But now they're uh, quaking in their boots because Trump is breaking with enslavement to Israel. Although he's going to APAC. I don't know what he's been saying. If it was tonight or recently, you know, he's going to have a meeting at APAC or do a talk at APAC. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But, he has, well, that's
2: probably he's covering his bet.
1: Yeah, he must be. Yeah, he, he, he said, I, I, "I can't make do the pres- enemies
2: there."
1: Yeah, he says, "I can't do the presidential debate because I have to go talk to some really important people, <laughs> people who <laughs> run the country." Apex.
2: Yeah, the guys with the money.
1: Yeah, <laughs> more
2: money than he's got. Right. Well, and and he's also sort of beaten him at their own game by he's got his own money and he got it through capitalism, through that very system that. And he just admit, admits, you know, that it's these are not nice people, and he's quite aware of that's how the game is played, and he's playing it like we might as well let's beat them at their own game.
1: Yeah, I think he's doing a great job as a as a politician, as much as I have to say that it's it's pretty disgusting. We've had this you know anti-Muslim genocide since 9/11, and you know, buying that official story which he supposedly doesn't. I mean, we've heard from was it Roger Stone, one of his top advisors, that he knows that there's something hinky about 9-11. Uh, uh, so if so, you know, why would he be ranting about how Muslims hate us and we have to keep Muslims out of the country and we might have to make them wear yellow moons or whatever? Uh, well, maybe that's all a political game or just channeling the populist zeitgeist. I don't know.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, but then looking on the flip side, if he, if he what, what he said was we have to, they're, they're really upset about something. We have to look into that and find out what really happened. So, if you really looked into what really happened, we might get some. We might get it, you know, something like an investigation, like the Peccora investigation in the 30s or whenever it was, investigating the um, Federal Reserve.
1: Well, this this would be set. It would be such forces uh, rising up against any kind of real investigation of 9/11. Uh, I would really wonder how that could possibly play out. And, you know, it, sure, it, ideally, somehow it would it would turn into a real investigation, get at the truth, and, you know, lance this boil and heal the country. But I could also see that the forces arrayed against it would see, oh, well, Trump, he's, he's ridden into the White House on all of this you know, populist Islamophobia, so let's just do another 9-11 type thing and he's not going to have a whole lot of choice because we're going to really make it look like it was done by Muslims. We're going to set up the Patsies a lot better this time than we did that time. Uh, and well,
2: I don't know. They they keep all these false flags, you know, immediately. It used to be it took a couple of days anyway before people figured out there was something fishy about it. But now, immediately, the day it happened, somebody's got a video up with all, pointing out all kinds of suspicious things.
1: Yeah, well, and that's people quite, are
2: very suspicious these days. They're yeah, not going
1: to be. Yeah, that's that's the whole theme of of my new book, Another French False Flag: Bloody Tracks from Paris to San Bernardino. It's that book is not just about the Paris and San Bernardino false flags, but also about this new phenomenon of people just jumping on them right away and exposing them and arguing that we should essentially assume these things are false flags until proven otherwise. If If it walks like a false flag, if it quacks like a false flag, it's probably a false flag. And the more people think that way, and they, you know, my article after Paris went viral, hit 100,000 reads in a day or two. My article after San Bernardino hit uh, 300,000 reads within a day or two. Obviously, there's a huge audience out there that is interested in learning about these things as false flags. And I think that's putting us in a different world. And if we continue on this path pretty soon, they're not going to be able to do any false flags because they just won't work anymore. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. So, so I hope that we reach that point before, you know, Trump gets into the White House and the neocons say, oh boy, you know, we don't want to be swinging from a rope, so we better, you know, do a, do a big one and, you know, blow up the Sears Tower in Chicago or wherever. And, uh, I mean, that, that's the natural thing for them to do to try to stop Trump or try to head off any kind of serious, uh, thrust after their own power. And, you know, if it's, if it's going after the power of the banksters as well as the neocons, well, you know, that's, that's a recipe for some real interesting uh, havoc. Yeah. But, yeah, we'll see how that plays out. So we only got have about a minute left before the bumper music starts. Ellen, uh, tell us about your website and
0: uh, and your books.
2: Um, well, my website is com, and my two books on this subject are Public Bank Solution and Web of Debt, and they're available on Amazon. And my website has hundreds of articles
1: on the subject. All right. Well, this recent article on Hillary's emails exposing that the real reason for taking out Gaddafi was not human rights, but it was to keep the bankster monopoly on currency in general and the French monopoly over North Africa in particular. I imagine the U.S. Uh, interests in Africa as well were affected. I mean, this is a, a really good, a very, very important article. You said your next article is about Trump? No.
2: Oh no. I, I was saying I was writing I'm writing a book on infrastructure without debt. Oh, ah, okay. Now I have to avoid the, I mean, Hillary's emails was just I was just presenting the facts there, but I'm not allowed to get into politics.
1: Okay, so you're not gonna tell us who you're gonna vote for. <laughs>
2: um Jill
1: Stein. <laughs> Jill Stein, okay. Yeah, I, I can kinda of see uh so so, well, you know, we're gonna have Well
2: that. no, I'd vote for Bernie, but I, I just I guess I'm not supposed to say that. But anyway.
1: Yeah, yep. I, I think Bernie is at the top of my list, too. It's a question think.
2: whether he'll get the nomination. That's the problem.
1: But, but, you know, we have an alternative, Ellen. In the second hour of the show, Ed Baker is coming on, and he is a presidential candidate from Arizona, and we're going to hear uh, what he has to say, so we'll, we'll see if he's on board
0: with the potential. Thank you so much.